0: Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad free on Amazon Music, include it with Prime.
1: This episode of the Nighttime Podcast includes content of a graphic nature that may be offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
0: You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. There is no disputing the fact that the genre of true crime is currently enjoying a surge in interest. Although crime stories have been around since the earliest days of storytelling, many believe the genre we now recognize wasn't born until 1965 when Truman Capote released his literary true crime novel, In Cold Blood. It's my opinion that what we're experiencing now is the genre's renaissance. As it expands itself into subgenres, we podcast listeners have nearly unlimited options of topics, styles, and presentation formats. You can become enraged as convicted makes a case for a wrongful conviction. You can join the online sleuths examining the clues along with Missing Maura Murray. You can listen in as True Crime Garage apply the basic principles of sports commentary to their true crime retrospectives or you can simply enjoy the audiobook style tellings provided by the Canadian True Crime Podcast. Regardless of your preference, these dark and tragic stories are ready to come out of the courtroom and get projected directly into our ears as we go about our daily lives. The amount of sensitive information available and the ease of access, however, leads me to consider questions of ethics. Of course, there are examples of coverage affecting a case in a positive way. But should we be okay with these stories being served up for casual listening? And what should we, the content creators, do to ensure our coverage is tasteful, accurate, and above all, welcomed by the families of those affected by these crimes? I'm certainly in no position to provide any insight on this moral conundrum, but tonight's guest is. She's a true crime fan, a journalist, and has lived through the experience of having a close family member's life cut short as the result of a violent crime. Her story came to my attention as the result of a piece she wrote for my local arts and culture weekly magazine, The Coast. In this article, she provided some details of the case and recounted her experience attending the trial of the man accused of murdering her aunt. In this case, the victim is unique and amazing, the details are as appalling as the accused is pathetic, and it's all filtered through the critical eye of a journalist with a background in crime reporting. Just as soon as I finished reading her article, I contacted the author to introduce myself and invite her to share the story of her aunt's murder and how it consumed her family for the last eight years. And she agreed. In this episode, Our topic will be the senseless murder of Pina Rizzi, all told via excerpts of my recent conversation with her niece, Christy Somos. When Christy and I met to discuss the murder of her auntie Pina, we knew it would be a long and emotional talk. To make it as comfortable as possible, we decided to record outdoors under a shaded tree instead of in my dark studio. Now I'm telling you where we record it so you won't be startled by the occasional car passing by or bird chirping. When Christy and I began our conversation, we started by discussing her personal history. I was curious to hear about this as I knew she had experience writing about the type of crime that would end up affecting her family.
1: Uh, My name is Christy Somos. I am a freelance journalist that is currently based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I work for a local publication called The Coast, but my freelance work can be found on CBC and on Vice.
0: After talking about the trials and tribulations of a freelancing journalist, Christy and I spoke at length about the victim in this case, her aunt, Pina Rizzi. Before meeting with Christy, I had read all I could about Pina's life story. I was surprised to find her in photographs standing with David Bowie and Angelina Jolie like old friends. As it would turn out, I would have more than enough material to dedicate a multi-part episode covering Pina's life before the tragic events we'll speak of today.
1: When I think about my Auntie Pina, the first thing that comes to mind every time is just freedom. In her career, she worked as a hair and makeup stylist, And that work took her to uh, Paris, Milan, all over the United States for fashion work. And then she also worked on large-scale movie sets. So she bounced around between New York and L.A. and Montreal quite often. It's not an easy lifestyle. You know, without trying to be too stereotypical or cliche, obviously drugs and alcohol are a big problem in the fashion and the movie industry, so there were a couple times where she definitely struggled um, mostly with cocaine and with alcohol. Um, she did do a couple rehab stints, but when you're constantly surrounded by something that is so pervasive in that industry, you it, it's easy to understand that relapses were kind of part of the deal.
0: As Pina's life makes its way through its many ups and downs, a chance injury would bring her back to the Canadian city of Montreal in the year prior to her death. In the next clip, Christy will describe Pina's life in
1: 2009. My aunt had been recently in L.A. and from my recollection she had finished up a contract and then she injured herself surfing. Uh, So she came back to Montreal to recuperate and she was living with my grandmother and I believe she was also planning on her next contract. So she was actively looking for work at that time.
0: In the time leading up to the tragic event we'll discuss shortly, Pina's family had no cause for concern, but that would all change when our guest Christy would receive a phone call that began the nightmare her family has been living in since 2009.
1: Now, at this point in time, My sister was backpacking through Asia with her friend and my parents were on vacation in Jamaica with my little brother. So I had just hung up a Skype phone call with my sister and I had said goodnight to her because of the time difference. It was very late at night, but it was kind of early afternoon for me. And yeah, the phone rang and it was caller ID and it had my uncle's name on it. It's not that we don't talk often, but you know, it's always exciting to hear from family members. So I picked up the phone and I can remember being, you know, cheerful and sing songy and being like, Hi, Uncle Tony. And then it was just a nightmare from that moment forward. You know, the voice that answered back did not sound like my uncle, it was a crying, sobbing, hysterical man. And the first words that came through the phone were, they've killed her. And I can remember, you know, just being so confused because there was, he didn't tell me who didn't tell me what. So I I kept asking questions, who who killed her? What are you talking about? And he said, they killed her. They killed your auntie Pina. She's been murdered. Uh, he was calling to look for my mother, his sister, and I explained to him that they were on vacation. You know, he very abruptly said, you know, you need to tell them what's going on and tell them to call me, and then hung up the phone. So the first thing I did was I phoned my sister back, and she answered, and she sounded like she was half asleep. And, you know, I was trying to be kind, and I said, I need you to wake up, but, you know, make sure you're sitting down, I need you to prepare for this. She, of course, was, what, 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 what are you talking about? And I said, Auntie Pina's dead, and that she's been killed by somebody else. That she's been murdered. And immediately my sister, you know, started crying and was asking for more details, and I said, I don't have any more information. Um, and she goes, Does, do mom and dad know? And I said, no. Um... You know, 18-year-old brain, I didn't remember the name of the resort that they were staying on. So I was asking my sister, do you remember where they are? And so she gave me the name. So I hung up the phone with her and then started Googling the phone numbers for this resort. After reaching reception, called their room, no answer. Um... And I think I must have called reception five or six times. And so you can imagine there were five or six slips of paper put under the door saying that they had missed a phone call. So then I started calling my parents' friends who were in their local church, because some part of me, even though I wasn't part of that church, knew that they would need, you know, backup, so to speak. And then the phone rang. And I was really sincerely hoping that it was gonna be my father on the other end of the line, but it was my mom. And you have to understand this is my mom's sister that I'm about to tell her. And again, you know, I was trying to preface these things by being like, I need you to sit down. Are you sitting down? Are you calm? Is dad there with you? Where are you guys? Like, which of course just made her even more frantic thinking that there was something going on with me. So I can't remember the exact words that I used, but I told her that Auntie Pina had been killed and that Uncle Tony said that she was murdered. My mom's response was, you know, she only repeated that last word, was murdered. And I think that exact moment was when my heart first started breaking.
0: When Christy and her family received the terrible news of Pina's death, the process of gathering information on her whereabouts and the days and moments leading up to her murder began. The chain of events that leads to her death would begin on the evening of August 1st, 2009. Pina and her close friend Annette meet up and spend this Saturday night enjoying Montreal's nightlife. Christy will tell you what she knows about that night in the next
1: clip. Annette and Pina have been friends for a very, very long time, uh, since teenagers, Basically, when I say that they're best friends, <laughs> you know, it, it goes back a long ways. From my understanding, they had gone to go see a show downtown Montreal and decided to go out and kind of, you know, hit hit the town. So where the story really picks up is that they had gone to um, Bar Saphir on Saint Laurent they were, you know, doing the usual thing, just drinking, having fun. Um, I'm not sure if my aunt took drugs at that bar, but I know that she was drinking. Um, And the amount that she was drinking was something that Annette was very closely questioned about um, by the police. And then as far as I can tell, they were approached by three separate men three guys I guess in a group um, and they hit it off and they were talking drinking laughing having fun my aunt wanted to continue the party to go to like an after-hours club but Annette wasn't feeling it and so you know they separated probably at 2 thirty, three in the morning um, and that was the last time Annette ever saw Pina was Pina leaving to go to the after-hours with these three men
0: when Pina and the three men stumble off into Sunday's earliest hours, there was no indication she was in danger of anything more than a nasty hangover. Later the next day, however, Annette is unable to reach Pina, and concern quickly builds.
1: You know, my grandmother had mentioned to Annette that Pina did not come home. And, it you know, it's not unusual for people who... Already up, you know, stay up late to take a while to respond. But this, we're talking, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours with no word. And then my uncle got involved as well because they were very concerned. So by August 4th, it's when they went to the police station to file a missing persons.
0: Pina's absence didn't feel right to Annette or to Pina's brother. And of course they were very concerned. A mitigating factor in their decision to involve the police so early was some disturbing news reports that a body had been found downtown.
1: If you want to call him a clerk or receptionist, was giving him a little bit of a hard time saying that not enough time had elapsed to file a missing persons report. I believe it's 48 full hours have to elapse before a missing persons report can be filed. But Annette and my uncle, you know, they persevered. And what had happened was... You know, they found a body that day, it was on the news. And Annette and my uncle were at the police station describing, I believe, the clothes that my aunt would have been wearing on the Sunday. And the way Annette says it, the clerk's face just went white. And, you know, she walked to the back. And then when she came back from the offices she had a superior officer with her who proceeded to inform them that the body that they had found matched the description of my aunt that they were giving.
0: Pina being found dead of course was terribly upsetting news for anyone close to her, but what makes this tragic event even more difficult is the degrading way in which she was found. No one deserves this, and certainly not Pina.
1: The body was found by a man named Pierre Penchot. He was trying to get out of the rain that had started very early that morning. And he had found, uh, in French it's called a cabaneau. We would call it like a garden shed in English. That was behind an abandoned car dealership in just outside like Montreal's core, down by like the railway. And he opened the shed door. He went in the shed and he noticed the smell. So he flicked his lighter. And he saw... two little feet sticking out from a carpet. At My aunt was a very small person, so he thought he had found a child. So he was the one who called 911. And what he found was my aunt's body had been... Uh, it was not dressed all the way. She had been rolled up in a carpet, and the carpet had been attempted to be set on fire. So that's the you know that's the scene that Monsieur Penschold would have found that day. Um, I'm very lucky, or I guess we're very lucky, that not a lot of time had elapsed before she was found, um, because evidence denigrates over time. And my family has expressed in person our thank you to Mr. Penschel for doing the right thing and calling the police when he did.
0: The state of Pina's body initially made a positive ID difficult. But once the missing persons report was received, there was little doubt that it was her. As far as who did this to her and why... Law enforcement hoped answers would be found in some of the evidence left behind in the small shed.
1: Initially, they did not know her identity. So it was just reported in CTV Montreal that the 18th homicide victim of the year had been found. She was female, Um, and that's pretty much all they wrote, you know, kind of where she had been found. Um, And at that time, we didn't know this until later, you know, the pathologist and the crime scene investigators, um, some of their major finds would have been a um, piece of gum. I believe there was various bits of, you know, wood in the cabineau. Um They had saliva, which was found on her body, um, just above her breast. And she had been face down. So one of her arms was tucked underneath her body, which protected the DNA evidence under her fingernails from being exposed to the fire or the smoke or any other process that could like, wash it away or something. I personally did not know about the CCTV footage until the trial, but I guess the officers who secured the scene would have realized that because it was right beside a railway that CCTV cameras are in use.
0: Although DNA and CCTV video may seem like the kind of home run evidence that would kickstart an investigation, in this case, at least initially, it was little help at all. The DNA didn't match anyone in the police database, and the CCTV footage Well we'll hear more about that later, but at this point in the investigation the quality was too poor to identify anyone in the video, except for Pina. As this evidence was of little use at this point in the investigation, the existence of both the DNA and video would remain a closely guarded secret that would only become public knowledge during the eventual trial. What law enforcement did share publicly was their interest in speaking with the three men Pina was last seen with.
1: Uh, so originally it was listed that they were looking for three men. The three men that my aunt had left uh, Bar-Safir with. So they were listed as a 25-year-old white man, a 40-year-old white man, and a 24-year-old man who was short, with short black hair, slicked back. Um, They had other descriptors, I believe one man was described as having tattoos on his forearm. You know, one was tall, one was short, um, but that's the best description that they had to go on.
0: And these are the three guys from
1: the bar, of course. Yes.
0: As investigators worked hard to locate the three men Pina spent a fortune of her last night with, her family would be left to form their own theories on how Pina ended up dead in a small shed.
1: Uh, we had a lot of theories. You know, it, it, was, a, it was a woman at night So your mind does go to the worst possible case scenario. You know, was it a predator? Was this someone who had assaulted other women? Uh, We we definitely talked about whether or not it may have been a hate crime. My aunt was part of the LGBT community. She was bisexual, but she dated women, mostly. You know, maybe a robbery, because she would have been out that night with a purse. And I know the uh, original officer who was interviewed at the scene was asked by uh, La Cresse and Journal de Montreal, you know, what are your theories? And while he didn't have a specific answer, his kind of echoed ours as we have to look at, is this a predator? Is this someone who has you know struck before? The worst thing was not knowing and having all these theories, but not being able to substantiate them.
0: During the four-year period spanning 2009 and 2013, very little will come in the way of new information and leads. Pina's loved ones were beginning to fear her murder case was on its way to going cold.
1: I felt... Hopeful myself that this was not going to be a cold case Um, But that was definitely a major fear that my mother had a cold case is usually Quantified as when there's no new evidence being pursued however, you know, we had correspondence from the detectives Who were very kind and said that uh, my aunt's case had a permanent residency on their desk and that something about this really bothered them, and that they weren't going to let it become a cold case. But four years is a very long time. My parents, in 2009, only did one interview with Journal de Montréal, and, you know, they asked for the public's assistance in finding the three men. The three men were never found, by the way. No one ever came forward in... I guess, eight years to say, you know what, I was one of those gentlemen. So we'll never know, really, when they got separated.
0: Just as Pina's family was beginning to lose hope the case would ever be solved, the investigation would receive a major break in 2013. For the past four years, the DNA profile and some fingerprints found on and around Pina's body have sat in a police database without being matched against any one person. But that would change when a man from quebec named jean-philippe tremblay would be arrested and processed on unrelated matters
1: jean-philippe tremblay is from northern quebec from a place named alma at the time of the murder in 2009 he was actually on the army base that is close to montreal but what had happened was He had been arrested for uttering death threats against a woman in a completely unrelated case. Um, So when he was processed for that, because she pressed charges, uh, they would have taken fingerprints. And that was the first step. Once it's entered into a database, it would have sent an alert to the detectives in Montreal there were multiple fingerprint impressions that were taken from the cabanon and they were a match for Mr. Tremblay's. So the Montreal detectives phoned, they're called the SQ which would be like RCMP uh, and asked them to keep an eye on him, so to speak. So they were following him for a little bit and he threw out a cigarette butt and a coffee cup and they picked it up for DNA. And it was... A very good match to the DNA found on my aunt's body.
0: With Tremblay's DNA being on Pina's body and fingerprints in the shed, law enforcement had solid proof he was at least there with Pina before, during, or after her murder. When they bring him in for questioning, however, suspicions would raise even higher when he denied even knowing her or even being in Montreal.
1: At first, Mr. Tremblay, he, he there's no other way to put it. He played dumb. So he said, you know, I think I'm here because you guys think I did something. Or, you know, the detective would start talking about how they start investigating a case. You know, start talking about a crime scene and the clues they look for. And, you know, he would interject and, so, and say, like, I don't know what this has to do with me. Slowly, over the nine hours, this detective who, by the way, as a journalist, I have seen interrogations a couple times and this was masterfully done but the first time the detective actually says my aunt's name uh, Mr. Tremblay's response was Rizzi no that, mean, that name means nothing to me I don't know who that is and dismisses it out of hand so at the very beginning uh, Tremblay denies You know, ever being going to Montreal. You know, maybe when he was younger and that changed to, oh, you know, I've been maybe one or two, three times with my my girlfriend, or uh, maybe I went out one night with some some guys that I know. Very vague answers, always. In Mr. Tremblay's mind, he's never done wrong, ever. He's been a victim his whole life and that includes the interrogation so unfortunately (laughs) my family and I had to sit through him talking about how hard his life has been you know he complained that he went to a private school and his friends were in public school he claimed that he was bullied in school and always uh, picked on because he was such a great athlete I don't recall any point in his interrogation where he takes responsibility for any part of his life.
0: After allowing Tremblay several hours to describe all the ways life has been unfair to him, the interrogator would slowly ramp up the pressure to a level Tremblay was incapable of managing. That's when he would tell his version of what happened.
1: Monsieur Tremblay is not responsible for anything in his own life. So you have to understand that when he framed his version of events he's always going to be the wronged party even though my aunt ended up dead because of him. In his version of events he was astonished because apparently my aunt approached him and he said, you know, I never get good looking women attracted to me so I was obviously very excited. Um, and then everything after that is my aunt's fault. He said that she wanted to go for a walk and that she led him to the shed and that she wanted to have sex with him. Um, and in his version of events, they were in the cabin to party, so to speak. He claims that she was doing cocaine in the shed. Uh, and then his version of events is that They went to have sex, but he could not perform, Um, but that my aunt was the aggressor and was verbally abusing him and saying, you know, come back in here, I guess he had left to have a smoke, come back in here and do your job, Um, was very uh, abrasive, you know, belittling him, I believe was the way he framed it, and that at one point he got very upset and hit her, but he didn't mean to. That was his, his, uh, caveat. And then he said that, you know, I didn't mean to, it was kind of like an accident. I just snapped, uh, and that he had, you know, left. And, uh, his version of events of what he did after changed multiple times. But what we do know is that his timeline does not match the CCTV footage.
0: Trombley would present himself as a pathetic person, mistreated during his entire life. In his version of the events, even Pina was cruel to him in how he alleges she reacted to his inability to sexually perform for her. His version of the story does have some obvious problems. First of all, was how he described her death. In his version, he hit her once. However, the condition of Pina's body proved she died an extremely violent death, in fact, it was described as overkill.
1: To put it gently, it was very difficult for the pathologist to even determine the amount of times that he hit her. What I mean by that is that her skull and her, like, her neck and her face were so disfigured she could only speculate that maybe four or five blows the head could have done that. But to, to drive the point home, The cartilage around her larynx, where an Adam's apple is, on a man, was fractured. Um, I don't want to be too graphic, but she was unrecognizable.
0: The physical evidence, which included a large, bloody rock found inside the shed, tell a story much more extreme than the one Tremblay admitted to. The investigators would have another piece of evidence that show his version of her death was inaccurate. What Tremblay didn't know during his confession was that a nearby railway installed CCTV cameras and the shed was perfectly framed by one of these cameras. Although the image was too grainy to identify Tremblay initially, now that the investigators know he was the person walking to the shed with Pina, the scene that plays out in the CCTV footage is much different than his version.
1: So once he had admitted to killing my aunt, in the cabineau, they were able to take the CCTV footage and isolate um, the time frames that would have matched up with what he was talking about. So in the CCTV footage, you see two figures go into the cabinot, and they're very distinct because my aunt was wearing an all-white outfit and he was wearing black. So they go into the cabinot. time goes by you see them step out periodically to have a smoke or whatever the case may be. But then there is a moment where my aunt leaves the cabino and walks all the way to the end of the parking lot and stands there. I don't know if she was calling a cab, I don't know if she was just getting some air. You know, my mind goes wild thinking, you know, did she have some sort of sixth sense to get out of there? Was she worried was she trying to call for help? But in the CCTV footage, you see uh, Tremblay come up behind her and drag her back into the cabinet and shut the door. And that is the last footage that I have of her alive.
0: After Tremblay admitted to being responsible, despite minimizing his actions, he would be charged with her murder. Shortly after the charges are laid, the investigators would contact Pina's family to pass along the news that they've been waiting for since her death.
1: He was arrested in 2013. He was actually charged on March 18th, 2013 with first-degree murder. And it was just serendipitous that my father had his cell phone on him and they got a phone call from one of the lead detectives, uh, Daniel Tegagne, and. The, you know, the basic phone call was, I just want to let you know that we have someone, we're, we're arresting someone. And I had found my own ways to cope, but I, I know, especially for my mother, that that was like, life-changing for her.
0: It would take roughly three years before these charges make it to trial. But when they did, our guest Christy was there. Pina's family would have their first chance to come face to face with her killer during the pretrial.
1: So the pretrial was in 2014, and it was just the crown, the defense, and a judge. And what it was, was a pretrial to determine whether there was enough evidence to prosecute him for first-degree murder, and whether to go ahead and um, hold the trial under those charges. That would have been the first time that I saw Tremblay face to face in the courtroom and his parents were not there, but his on and off again girlfriend and the mother of his children was there. And there was an elderly couple who were very close friends of the family, his family, who had come down to be a part of the trial and I guess report back to the family. So what was presented was the crown's evidence, which meant that they would have seen footage of the crime scene. They would have seen photos of my aunt's body, of the physical evidence found in the in the uh, His version of events, I believe, were presented, and the crown's alternate, you know, version of events
0: with the pre-trial presenting Pina and Trombley's family's first opportunity to hear the case laid out and see the evidence, I asked Christy to describe the scene during this part of the court proceedings.
1: It sounds quite twisted, but it was almost better to know than not know because your mind always creates a worse <laughs> scenario. Not that there is much worse than what happened to her. Finding out that she was conscious when he first attacked her was probably the worst that I felt. You know, hearing that she had defensive wounds on her hands, for me it boiled down to he had a chance to stop. You know, there was someone physically fighting back for her life. The only small token that I got from that was that she was already dead when he set the fire. So she wouldn't feel that. Um, His girlfriend or mother of his children, I believe I only saw her for two or three days. She would have witnessed some of the evidence, and then she left, and she left him. We don't know all the details, because we're obviously not close with their family, but I do know that his adoptive parents are the ones taking care of his children. He has four of them. So not only did my family lose family members, these kids have lost their father, and now their mother is gone as well. So it's not just my family who have become victims of this person.
0: It was only during the trial that the brutality and extreme nature of the attack on Pina became clear to her family. Christy described her family's reaction to the horrible details of Tremblay's attack.
1: I've talked about this in in an article or two that I've written about it, just that I have this ability to put on, I guess you could call it a work face. So in my time as a journalist, I have covered some pretty nasty things, and I've been exposed to some pretty nasty things, and you do build up, I guess, a a shield for yourself. Um, My parents did not have that luxury. So I think what was more painful for me to process was to watch their reactions of reliving this over and over again. I kind of knew what to expect from a courtroom, um, but my my parents, you know, (laughs) we've never been in trouble with the law. So the only time that we've really spent time in a superior court like that would have been this. And for the pre-trial, it was kind of a circus because the courtroom was right next to Luca Magnata's courtroom. So there was press everywhere. The second time, it was very quiet in terms of people in the hallways. But it was kind of fitting because being in that courtroom was like being in a bubble. You know, every like there's no phones, you're not allowed to speak really to each other. No chewing gum, no water, you have to sit up straight like you can't put your arm on the back of the chair. Um, You're not allowed to physically react to any of the evidence. So, you know, you're not allowed to flip off the accused or, you know, make comments or whatever the case may be. Um, And so for me, it was quite natural for me to kind of slide into that neutral work face. But it was not like that from my mother or my father to be honest for with you.
0: With Tremblay's confession making up a significant piece of the evidence against him, I was curious what case his defense had. In the next clip, Christy will describe what was presented by Tremblay's legal representation.
1: Monsieur Tremblay was represented by Monsieur Latour. Um, so Latour, when he addressed the jury, said we're not here for an acquittal, that's off the table. Meaning the jury has now seen him confess. So their defense was to argue that it was not first degree or second degree, but that it was involuntary manslaughter, meaning an accident that he did not mean to kill her. There was a moment in time where we thought Tremblay would take the stand himself. Um, And I looked forward to that day but I don't know if his lawyer chose not to or if he chickened out personally but he never went on the stand himself in fact he never spoke until the verdict was handed down so what Monsieur Latour did was to try and pick apart the expert testimony from the crown so the pathologist the crime scene photographer um the the fire experts so oh, this man who has done uh, analysis of fire that's used in crimes and he went through the interrogation that Tremblay had done and tried to kind of sway the jury into thinking that you know this was a, a man who he did something very bad but and it's that but you know, it wasn't premeditated. There wasn't, uh, he tried to argue against um, unlawful confinement, which would have been him not allowing my aunt to leave the cabineau. Um He argued that there was no premeditation and that there was no uh, sexual aggression. So that was multiple slaps to the face at one time.
0: Once the Crown and the defense presented their case, it would be left to the judge to determine Tremblay's fate. Although it didn't take the jury long to reach a unanimous decision, it must have felt like an eternity for those close to Pina who at this point have been waiting eight years for justice.
1: So the closing arguments were presented on a Monday. The next day, the judge instructed the jury on what each count for a first-degree murder would mean. So she explained in detail what unlawful confinement would mean or the sexual aggression part or the premeditation part. So the Tuesday, they would have been ordered to be sequestered. So I guess 48 hours is how long they deliberated.
0: After 48 hours of deliberation, court would be called back in session for the reading of the verdict. If you're listening to this episode upon its release, the verdict was read just over two weeks ago.
1: They found him guilty of first-degree murder or I guess they would have phrased it murder in the first degree they found him guilty Um, the judge was extremely kind and allowed my mother to address the court in a victim impact statement which for first-degree murder does not happen it's just one of those things Um, so my mom stood up She thanked the jury, she thanked the defense, she thanked the Crown and the detectives, and then she thanked the judge. And uh, you can see her extended interview on CTV where she goes a little bit more into detail about what exactly she said. Um, But that is a small glowing moment for me that the judge was kind enough to allow my mom to express Our gratitude. It has been an incredibly long road. She had also lost her brother by that time. My uncle died of a heart attack, is the official um, diagnosis, but he was so depressed and never recovered from my aunt's passing that he went up to his cottage and he let himself die. Um, Unfortunately, after my mom had been trying to get in contact with him, someone went looking for him and found his body. So it was just my mom and my grandmother. So I think that little bit at the end was going to allow my mom to have some peace.
0: After the guilty verdict was handed down and Christie's mother had a chance to provide a victim impact statement, Tremblay, too, would be invited to speak. Much to the surprise of those in attendance, he decided to break the silence he's been maintaining.
1: Um, So after my mom presented, you know, her victim impact statement to the court, the judge asked Tremblay if he would like to address the court. So he stood up, And he looked in the general direction of my family. I don't know if he was ever brave enough to meet anyone's eyes but mine. And he said, For eight years, I've been thinking about it. I hope that one day in the future, you will have less trouble. I've destroyed your family. I'm really sorry. And... I can't think of a more pathetic thing to say. (laughs) If you were thinking about it for eight years, why didn't you come forward? You know, if you were really having such a guilty conscience, why lie? Why hide? Why? Well, we know why, but so much pain and suffering could have been avoided if he came forward to the police when she was found. You know, 2009, it's 2017, it's eight years of my family going through hell. And, you know, his story will never be adequate. And I don't think it's genuine.
0: With Tremblay found guilty of murder in the first degree, he would be handed a life sentence. But with the trial and the mystery surrounding what happened to Pina behind them, Christy and her family would now be able to move on with their lives. I asked Christy what her family is doing to keep Pina's memory alive.
1: Um, For myself, personally, it's doing things like this. Uh, Writing about it, talking about it, you know, talking about her doesn't get as painful every day as it goes by for my parents. I I feel like now that the trial is over, they can talk about the good memories now that they have and that this like overhanging cloud of not knowing and then finding out about Tremblay and then the trial has allowed them to finally be able to grieve properly but also reconnect with the good memories there are good memories there don't get me wrong um i think eventually i personally would like to write a book but it's uh there's always going to be that hole there for me
0: in the last clip of tonight's episode you'll hear christy reflect on how this personal experience with violent crime has affected her interest in true crime as well as her approach when covering crime stories as a journalist.
1: I think people who are into true crime and into documentaries on serial killers or, you know, criminal pathology or criminal psychology, there's always that kind of stigma that we shouldn't really be into or shouldn't really be exploring this. And I've always been interested in something like that. And I think I'm always interested in what drives people to do what they do. But after this, it's not so much speculation on what drove people to do what they do. It's the realization that there is just sometimes no explanation for something like this. And... I think as a journalist, you have a responsibility to the truth. And we were lucky enough that our truth was found and vindicated and he's behind bars. Not everyone is that lucky. And I think that, you know, knowing that other people are and have been going through things like this, but don't get the same result is is very... You know, it, it puts a fire in me to be able to present things and write about things that are really difficult but need to be told. You know, my aunt's story needed to be told, and I'm doing that. But what about for other people who aren't journalists or don't have access to, you know, getting their story out? Um, so I think being a, a true crime fan... If anything, is just even more in my blood after this. I want to thank Christy
0: Somos for sharing both the wonderful memories and the tragic moments of her Auntie Pina's life. Your family is fortunate to have a wonderful storyteller to share Pina's story and to help keep her memory alive. When you write a book, I'll be following up with you for a signed copy. And with that, we will conclude this episode of the Nighttime Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more content, please check out the nighttime patron group where for $1 a month you'll have access to supporter exclusive bonus content. You can join now by visiting patreon.com nighttimepodcast On behalf of myself and the show's listeners, I'd like to thank the continued support of the show's current patrons and welcome the newest members of the group, Stilianos and Peggy. Without you all, the production of the show would be impossible. I'd like to thank you for listening to the nighttime podcast. If you enjoy your time here, please rate review and subscribe to the show on whichever podcast platform you use to stay up to date. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at nighttime pod. If you have any story ideas or any feedback for the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. So until next time, Keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.